Hi everyone, this is Beverly Barnett-Jones and I'm here with my colleague yeah, Tim, Tim Fisher. Tim Fisher. <laughs> and this is our second uh, podcast of our Relational Soup series, which is about talking to people we feel that can teach us something and we can learn something around uh, the, the being human and how we relate, care, want to craft each other and something about the world that we're in. Clearly, we're all in a really epoch-making moment here around COVID, but we really want to focus on the mission of this uh, particular um, uh, journey that we have, which is around talking to people, around stories they may want to share with us in regards to their own um, their own epoch-making moments, their own their own sense of the, the world and what shaped them or what formed them and what forms their ideas. Those of you who don't have the pleasure of listening to Radio 4 on a Sunday morning, which you should do, uh, but um, Tom Shakespeare is actually a member of the Shakespeare family and I'm going to embarrass him now by saying that he's actually Sir Thomas William Shakespeare, but he chooses not to use the title. He's Father was a very uh, well-respected uh, international medic and was also uh, a holder of a, of a, of a baroncy. Tom was born in 1966. Uh, and in fact, that makes me older than you, actually, sweetie, because you're born in May, aren't you? <laughs> and uh, was educated at Radley College in Oxfordshire, where he did his A-levels, and then went to Cambridge uh, to read Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celt and Celtic, is it? Or Celtic? I don't know how you pronounce that, Tom. We'll have to with my lack of intelligence there. Um, he's been involved for many years in the disability rights movement. He's a writer on disability, also a huge influencer and writer regarding genetics and bioethics. He's written a number of books, I think, very recently, and one which I think is about hope, which we hope to be seeing soon. Um, and I think we need that in the time of COVID, as we're calling it. It'd be lovely to read that, that, that new piece of work. Uh, Tom is also a man of many, many talents, uh, spent many years working for the uh, Art Council of England, also the World Health Organization itself uh, as a technical officer. And he's currently, um, no, this is not up to date because you're now at the London Tropicals, aren't you? I don't know if you want to update me there, Tom. <laughs> I'm Professor of Disability Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to my lovely colleague, uh, Tim, just to talk a little bit about relational uh, soup for us and then to invite Tom to tell us uh, his stories. Yeah, that's good. I, I was um, The response to the last Relational Soup podcast has been really nice for us because um, people that have listened to it have come back to us with some of their feelings and some of their how it's influenced their thinking on relationships. We really feel uh, strongly that there needs to be a change in child protection and some of the ways in which social work is operating. So to bring some uh, stories to um, enable people to just really um, uh, relax into and listen and think and feel around stories of, of helping of human relationships. I mean, it's been a journey for us to sort of harvest those stories, to gather them, to meet people, but also to share those with others has been a lovely experience because it's a, it's a, it's an experience of connecting and being with different people. And um, for me personally, the, these peregrinations with Beverly, you know, and um, going places with her and talking with her, and then um, being able to enjoy her company. So, um, for a personal one for me, it's been it's, it's been really nice. But um, that's lovely, Tim. So I think we'll sort of say, Tom, to you that um, thank you for agreeing to tell us some of your stories and we're just going to invite you just to um wax lyrical because you're great at that 
<laughs> Way, that's a dangerous thing. You, you, I hope the clock doesn't run down. So uh, I, I'm a social researcher, uh, and that means for me, uh, it's a qualitative approach. I want to talk to people. I want to listen to people and hear their stories of their lives. Um, and disabled people's stories are not heard. Our voices are not present in many um, forums where we should be. Um, and I firmly believe in co-production and bringing those voices to the table. So for 30 years, I've been involved in um, maybe three areas. One is disability rights activism, trying to change policy and practice and raise awareness of our contribution and our rights. Um, secondly, um, disability arts, uh, making people think through art is a hobby of mine. Uh, but most importantly for me, perhaps, being a disability researcher, uh, being an academic, and I've been at various uh, institutions, most recently, as I said, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I love going to talk to people. Um, and I'm not trivialising, people's lives are very, very difficult. Um, and when I started being a researcher, I thought that going to interview people and hear their stories might be oppressive. I thought they might feel that here is I, white, male, uh, coming in, privileged as Bev has uh, outlined, coming in and, and getting their stories, and they would hate that. But what I found in all of my experience is that people are really keen to tell their stories. Sometimes they've never told their stories. It can be, I mean, it's not, I'm not a therapist. I'm certainly not, never pretend to be, but it can be therapeutic for them to be heard and to have a chance just to explore. And sometimes in an interview, you can feel that they are coming to terms with or, or reconciling or working out. And I'll give you a couple of examples of that in a minute. Um, so uh, I, with all you know, ethics and all the rest of it, I think it is important to listen to people. Um, I'll tell you a, a, a number of the projects that I've done. So back in the day, in the 1990s, my mate Nick Watson and I did a project about disabled children, and it was called Life as a Disabled Child. That was a mistake. It was the wrong title. And children told us that straightway. They said, no, um, there is no, you know, we are people first. We're children first. You know, we want to be with other children. We want to be with our mates. We're not disabled children. So they, they rejected this label of disability. But also they showed us that there is no one disabled child. There are many disabled children. Depends on the impairment, the gender, the ethnicity, the background, the context. And so that was a real challenge. And I learned from that a lot. Around the same time, I did this project called Sexual Politics of Disability. And that was with um, my friend Kath Gillespie-Sells and Dominic Davis. And we got the interviews with 42 different disabled people. Um, now, this is really interesting because sexuality is, is a really complicated thing and gender identity. We found that people, men with disabilities, said they didn't really think of themselves as heterosexual men. They thought of themselves as a different sort. You know, they were freed up to be a different sort of man because they were disabled. They were freed from gender roles, if you like. And women also said this. You know, they could be different things. For example, a woman from a, a Muslim background said, look, I would never have had a career if I'd been non-disabled. But being disabled, I was liberated from having to be a wife and mother. 
and I could do other things. And I, we, we found that very exciting. I remember talking to a gay guy and he was gay and he'd had polio. And in the course of the interview, it became evident to him and therefore to us that although that what he'd done is he channeled all these feelings of difference into being gay. He'd been a member of the campaign of homosexual equality in the 70s. And yeah, he's very much an out gay guy. But what he had not thought about was disability. And in the process of the interview, he was coming, not coming to terms, but almost coming out as a disabled guy and thinking about how this affected him and discussing it. Um, and again and again, particularly in these interviews around sexuality and disability, we felt that people were disclosing things, hopefully in a very safe way, um, or thinking about things, coming to terms with things um, that they hadn't thought of before. I remember uh, one, I've got a painting on my wall, um, and it's a, so it's a portrait of me. Uh, because what happened was I uh, wanted to interview this guy who was a painter. And he said, well, that's fine. You can come and interview me. I trust you. Um, but only if you let me paint you. So that we had this, I mean, it would have been a great film in that uh, we were sitting there and I was talking to him about his life. He was very candid, very open, and he was painting me. So we both got a, a, a portrait, if you like. So it's always selection. It's always light and dark. It's always, you know, the, the interviewer is, is in charge, the interview really. But at the end of the day, what I always try to do at the end of these interviews, at the end of it was to say, look, what do you want to know about me? Because you've told me everything. You've trusted me. And now I must trust you and tell you anything you want to know. Um, and so trying to equalize that relationship, it's never fully equal, but trying to say, look, you know, we're human beings in this encounter. And it's important if you want to, for you to know about me and to trust me uh, and to trust that I will look after your story. Um, more recently, let me give you a, a, a final example, although there are lots of other studies that I've done. Um, I, 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 I worked, as Bev says, at the World Health Organization in Geneva, and we wrote the World Report on Disability in 2011. I say we, it was a whole bunch of us. You know, I was a small part of a, of a big group. And um, uh, we presented at the UN and all the rest of it. It's really, really a highlight of my career. Um, but when you work at the WHO, you are for the world. Um, and, you know, there are whatever it is, 60 million people in Britain um, and however many, uh, uh, yeah, eight, seven or eight million disabled people. And they're really important. And believe me, they're poor and they're excluded and they have a whole lot of problems. But um, when I worked at the WHO, I became aware of the billion disabled people in the world. You know, it's 15% of the population. It's a vast number of people. And I thought, well, I have, to, I have to do some research here. I have to understand, if I can, a small part of these lives. And I, I, I developed a project, which I got funded with Nora Gross at UCL, um, to do research with disabled people in Africa. And the thing is that if you look at disability and developing countries, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom. There's a lot of exclusion, poverty, one third of disabled children are out of school, for example, um, poverty and unemployment and begging, and it's grim. That is true. But also, as an activist, I had met loads of really powerful disabled African men and women. And what I worried about was if we always think disabled people in Africa are failing and are dependent and can't do anything, that's such a negative view. And I'd met really empowered people. 
And so I wanted to do a research project with disabled people who'd had success. And I don't mean that they were sort of Paralympian superstars. I mean that they were, you know, they'd gone to school. They'd maybe finished school. They'd maybe even gone to university. They had a job. They run a business, a shop, or uh, they were cobblers or tailors, or uh, uh, they made peanut butter, or um, I'm trying to remember, beekeepers. Yeah, all sorts of jobs. And maybe they had a partner and a family. Because that's what people want. They want a, a job, a partner, and a family. I think most, not everybody, but most people. And I had no trouble finding Africans with disabilities who had success in their lives. And you know, before I knew it, I had 103 stories. I collected about 30 or 40 of those. And my collaborators, wonderful people in Zambia, Uganda, and Kenya, collected the rest with me, for me. And we've written a series of, we analyzed the data, we've written a series of, of papers. And I'm always interested in telling people stories. And I've been around the world giving these papers, telling people stories. I just want to tell you a few of them. You know, the number of disabled people who told me, I was the only member of my family to finish school. You know, finishing school is a big thing, as we know in Africa. And folk, uh, you know, had persevered. One guy um, uh, in Zambia, I remember he was a polio survivor and he used crutches. And so I said, hey, that must have been difficult getting, getting school for somebody like you. Because the Zambian roads, you know, they're bumpy, they're dirty. Yeah, they're, they're not they're not pavement like we are. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he said, yeah, it took me three hours morning and evening to finish school, to get to school and come back from school. Three hours walking. And that blew me away. I've never forgotten that. And he didn't, it's nothing to him. You know, it was, well, it wasn't nothing. It was a big effort, but he finished school. Um, and the people who were committed to other people, the people that had drive and, 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 and not everybody succeeds by no means, but loads did. I remember I saw, um, I, 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 I was in, in Lusaka again, um, and there was a tailor that we wanted to meet, who another polio survivor who had a mobility impairment and walked with a crutch. He was married, a couple of children, ran a tailoring business. And I thought, how am I going to get to him? Because it was down basically an alley, muddy. There was a sewer in the middle of broken bricks. You know, it was really rocky. And just to tell the listener, I'm paralyzed. I mean, I use a wheelchair. I can't walk very well. I can walk a bit. Anyway, I was with two, co- my driver and my co-researcher, and they each took my arm and they basically frog marched me down this alley to talk to the street tailor. And he was just brilliant. And um, two things, uh, he was, you know, he was successful, small scale success. And two things uh, stuck out for me. One was that he, he was incredulous that I, a white professor or whatever I was from England, had come all the way to talk to him. Why me? What have I done? What's so good about me? Uh, and the other was the moment um, when uh, I said, how do you account for your success? How have you got here to where you are today? Because you are you are successful. And he looked at me and without you know batting an eyelid or or or, or blinking, he said, uh, "The grace of God." Um, and I found that uh, what was really interesting in Africa was that everybody was religious. I thought I'd found one atheist in Africa. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. He was a blooming Presbyterian. Um, uh, he's, he's a good mate of mine, Anthony. I I, I love him. Uh, we've collaborated, we still collaborate, he's a researcher. Um, but yeah, he was a Presbyterian, he wasn't an atheist. 
Um, uh, I, the first giveaway was he, when he asked me to get him the complete works of Calvin and <laughs> from Addison. Anyway, um, uh, but I, I talked to I talked to some really wonderful people, and they weren't, you know, they weren't superheroes. And this is what I learned: is that um, how for all of us, how do we form ourselves? How do we become people? And the psychologists have said two things which are really interesting to me. A woman called Maston, Deborah Maston, uh, sorry, Anne Maston, wrote, uh, wrote papers. And what she said is that resilience is an ordinary magic. We have this idea with disability that disabled people are superheroes. You know, we have this sort of pity porn. Oh, you're amazing. How wonderful you are. And the fact is that there are, like with non-disabled people, a lot of wonderful people. Um, but that resilience is a part of human capacity um that uh yeah it's not just about individuals it's also about context you know my street tailor in lusaka had been given a sewing machine by his sister and he'd been given tailoring lessons by his brother-in-law and that had enabled him to earn a living so it's not just that you are super it's just that you get you're in a context you you know the ugandan government uh, will sponsor your education if you're disabled and want to go to university. That's a big external factor. Loads of people had benefactors or they benefited from you know government schemes or whatever. That's why they become successful. But they also had individual capacity and capability. And and as well as this idea of ordinary magic, that everybody has this human capacity to thrive and to survive and adapt like those people in the sexuality study who'd adapted and they, you know, they, they were happy, uh, even though they weren't necessarily like everybody else, they'd found a way of being happy. Um, this concept, which is called uh, adversity inoculation. And this is the idea that if you face a uh, obstacle and you have to try and get over it, it makes you feel good. You have done this thing. And it might be really simple. I mean, it might be me picking something off the floor with my grabber um, or, you know, somebody's left the dishwashing liquid on, 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 on the shelf and I can't reach it. And I get my grabber and I reach it down. Gosh, that makes me feel good. You know, not for very you know, two minutes, but it's pretty good. But the point about disability is we're faced with all these obstacles. And hopefully we, if we're the right in a context, we can overcome them. Each time we overcome an obstacle, we feel stronger. And then we have another obstacle and we overcome that and we feel stronger. And then another obstacle and we overcome that and we feel stronger. And in this process, we become self-confident. If we face no obstacles, it, you know, we, we, we have maybe a fragile sense of self-confidence. And disability is amazing because it gives disabled people a fairly constant set of obstacles every single day. It's not easy. We are overcoming obstacles uh, because we have to. Um, and it's that, I think, which means that a lot of disabled people are really strong, really assertive, really successful, which is something you never hear. But I found it in these disabled people in Africa. I found it in the people talking about sexuality in Britain and over and over again. It, it's not the same for everybody. It's not that everybody does it. And some people, the obstacles are so huge that they can't go over. Um, and, and we've got to remove those obstacles. We've got to you know, uh, 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 make it a level playing field. But um, the fact that you have to face these things and overcome them is not bad for your, for your character, for your sense of self. And that's very much what I found with these 103 uh, disabled folk from Africa. So, yeah, at the moment, I'm trying to write out their stories. 
And finally, before I stop wittering on, uh, today I submitted the revised ethics form for a study about COVID. You know, we're in the midst of this epidemic. How are disabled people coping? What are they doing? Because where do they get their food? Um, uh, what is social isolation like for them and their mental health? Um, what if they rely on family or um, carers, personal assistants, to support them? Well, you can't socially isolate if you need somebody else to um, make your meals or, or, wipe your bum. or wipe your bum. So oh. what are we doing about this? And the fear, I did a discussion yesterday on Twitter, and the fear from people and sometimes the panic uh, about um, you know whether they're going to get a ventilator or whatever it is 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 really important to hear. Um, we've got to promote understanding of the guidelines and all the rest of it, which are not as bad as anybody thinks. I promise you. Um, uh, but we've got to, we've got to try and dispel this panic, give proper information, but above all, hear the voices and experiences of disabled people. So we're going to do, I think, sixty interviews in Scotland and England with disabled people about the epidemic, including parents and disabled children, and really try and gather those detailed, rich stories. Because it's not a matter of tick boxes, it's a matter of hearing uh, what's going on, where the, the stresses are, and where's the de-stress, um, and understanding how we can work together to overcome those obstacles. Tom, thank you for, for taking us through that. I love your setting of your your social research journey and, and your journey as a person. And I, I, I could really feel your whole story around your, the ethics of what you do as a social researcher coming through for me. There's something very connected to us around our idea about the social workers and being relational, which is how much of it, how much of yourself do you share in that exchange with families? Because we are operating, you know, as people who are state actors, you know, because we have this, delegated statutory power we we can through um, a conversation with a family enter their homes and demand certain responses we don't have the power to make people do things but because of the context that people construct us with because the stories are there with really bad experiences of the state and social work and really bad experiences of lots of families lots of poor oppressive practice has happened and continues to happen but we are in this world where we're trying to get closer to the sense of the thinking and feeling social worker who is able to be confident in the conversation and share something of themselves without it becoming a question of you become the centre of the exchange. Because sometimes you get a world, you're in a world where you start talking about your life and that's not what families need to be hearing. But what you need to be in the world of is showing something of your transparency about where you sit as a, a person, where you, what you think yourself is as a, in terms of your human practice and being able to kind of open that space. And that's very hard for social workers because the training to, and the desire for social work to acquire a professional status is this idea that you lock down, you know, this connection, this emotional or relational connection, or this we're, we're human beings. You know, you're, you're, you're trained away from that. And, you know, yet the biggest stories that families tell us is you just don't treat us as though we're people, you know, and you don't act like people when you come to speak to us. I don't feel the same way about my doctor as I feel about you, you know, and there are things that my doctor is saying about my child who may have say particular needs that I'm not agreeing with, but I feel as though that person is bothered about me and connected to me and sees me as a whole, a whole human. And there's a lot of, lot of challenge for us as child and child protection and strategy work around that experience of us. So I loved, I loved your story about, at the end, what do you want to know about me? You know, what do I need to say to you about me? What is it I can share about me after you've told me perhaps so much about your life and perhaps 
you didn't know you were going to tell me so much because you've, as you were saying, people want to tell their stories and sometimes they're surprised what comes out in the storytelling that opens them up to yeah. their own understanding of themselves, you know? Absolutely. Tim? And they're naked. Yeah, they're essentially yeah. naked. Um, yeah. And I, I think the research is different from social workers, as you very accurately say. Um, and I know that doctors and social workers have to maintain boundaries, professionalism, uh, and also they do this day in, day out. They have to protect themselves from, from um, you know, from, from, from real pain and trauma and distress. Um, I don't do it nearly. It's not my job every day. You know, it, mm. I, I do sort of a, a few dozen interviews a year, maybe uh, 50 at most. Um, I remember a, uh, a psychiatrist that I knew, and he, he used to call it the second cup of tea. And what he would do, he'd go to visit his community psychiatrist in East London, and he'd go to visit folk in their home, and they'd say, have a cup of tea. And he'd say, yes, and he'd have a cup of tea with them, because that's what you do, you know, and it's friendly, and, and you want to be trusted. Uh, but he said, I never have the second cup of tea. And what he meant was, I think, is that you're not their friend. Um, and and you have to maintain a distance and mm. you know, that balance, isn't it? Um, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not people's friend either. I mean, I probably never see them again. But I want to be friendly. I want to be honest, respectful. Yeah, I want to be professional. But yeah, I don't have to be the detached uh, uh, professional that a doctor or a social worker or whatever has to be. So I'm lucky in that sense. I'm liberated in that sense. I don't work for the state. You know, I came to this um with a view of you as a storyteller and you've you've just given us something really fascinating and exciting about the importance of being a story collector and of yourself as a as a collector of of stories i was watching the um you know that old, old um, channel four program with uh, susan sontag and john berger talking about a story the other day and um susan sontag saying you know, the uh, stories are, are important to res restore the intensity of the intensity of feeling. Yeah. And um, mm. you know, as I was listening to that, the um, the details that you gave about peanut butter and honey, and you know, were really <laughs> yeah. taking me, were really, really, uh, really uh, uh, taking me there. And um, oh. in Uganda, I said to him, "Look, when you come, bring some peanut butter from this lady." And uh, yeah. <laughs> We can try. It's the best. It is, it is the best because I, I can I can attest to the fact that this is the best because it is the main it is the main food. The ground nut is the main yeah. food supplement yes. protein, so it is beautiful. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I mean, I can tell you. I mean, I've I've had traumas in my life. I became paralysed. I spent you know weeks in rehabilitation. I learned to walk again. You know all of this, but I kind of I could do that if you want me to. But I think what we, I love is meeting people. I was thinking of. We take it to adult social care and the current focus on strength-based practice. And my feeling is that sometimes the social worker thinks that strength-based practice, or sometimes we, we look at strength-based practice as a kind of benevolent assessment of somebody's capacities or our view as a professional of what mm. somebody's strengths are, rather than it being a, a co-produced, uh, a mutual assessment, or even, as you said there, Tom, how... Those freedoms, the the idea that somebody owns their own identity, you know, that's really so important for me. And I don't think that message is quite there yet in in social. I think we're still in the space of, you know, okay, now we're looking to the positives. We're looking at strengths. But it, but it starts from, doesn't it, a negative encounter, doesn't it? It starts from a deficit 
encounter yeah. because you're yeah. making a, a kind of really deep assumption about a set of people that you are not talking to, you know, and you're not listening yeah. to and you're not hearing. And then you kind of say, yes, but we don't want to just focus on all the negatives. Let's, let's look at the strengths and let's look at the policies. And you think, well, actually, let's look at the person as a whole person and let's understand, you know, what are the inhibitors, what are the obstacles in the life path of somebody that makes life difficult for people, you know? Because yeah. every if you talk about human capacity, uh, which Tom referred to in terms of, was it Anne, Anne Maston? I don't, I don't know her work. Yeah, she's a psychologist. She's a, yes. a, a psychologist, Anne Maston, yeah. Yeah, so for me, that's, that's really, really a real challenge for us because I think, my closer association is with working with children with disabilities, as Tom knew that I was a children with disability social worker in the early days of my career. And, you know, and I've got back into it on the other end around the whole hell around SEND, you know, and what's going on in terms of, you know, the uh, the, the huge number of children with identified uh, special needs who are, one, not receiving an education at the moment because their support and levels of support aren't there. So they're actually at home, hugely home educated. Uh, huge amount who actually are the ones who are the, are the young people who are being excluded when they are in mainstream provision and then the whole kind of issue around what's happened even with this COVID bill which COVID act which is to suspend some of the requirements around assessment it, automatically that category of young people fall out of state the state statutory duty you know almost as though that's so is that okay you know that's some of the most vulnerable that the state have identified are the ones who are the first to be sort of sent the ticket through the exit door uh during this process we're not going to uphold our duties to you we're going to just caveat them with some some discretion so there's a massive story there i think tommy what you said about you know um you know the central work you're, you're doing around the voice of people and their stories and their experiences but then looking at that context what is it I thought there was something interesting there, Tim, around the, the role of the family for the tailor, you know, the tailor yeah. having the family. Because, I mean, that's your that's your world, isn't it, around... Tim's got done a lot of work around family group conferencing and the idea of family. Talk a bit about that, Tim, to Tom, because I think there's a nice dialogue there to be had around that. Well, I guess the... Um, I mean, the family group conferencing, you might know, came from New Zealand, where Maori families were pointing to straight state racism and looking at the disproportionate numbers of Maori children that were going into care. And so the New Zealand government at the time opened, a, a, started a conversation with Maori communities and they developed this model of family group conference, which has been quite influential around the world. A lot of social workers visited New Zealand and then went back to Europe or went to North America. Uh, there's family group conferencing taking place in, in, in China now. Believe it, which is interesting, and yeah, so that so it's a sort of radical method within a, a, a traditional, or you might say, <clears throat> from a critical perspective, an oppressive system. <clears throat> but I think one of the things that's come through to me in family good conference, and what you what you're saying, Tom, is if you get to that, if you get to the level where where you're communicating with with somebody as 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 an equal and somebody that can surprise uh, you are in, in, engaging that dialogue then i was talking to a young person the other day and they introduced me to the phrase catching the feels they were saying you know this is uh, and it's a phrase that they've got about relationships you know i'm catching the feels of being with my partner or being with my family and i'm catching the feels and then um, it made me think you know the way that you were talking about 
those people that you've encountered and you've collected stories and had those conversations with over the years, you're catching the feelings there. You're actually, you're in a relational experience of actually enjoying the, 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 the time with, with people. And it's more mm-hmm. fundamentally um, social mm-hmm. way to way to, um, to, to to do your work, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I, I think catch. I've written down in my little notebook, catching the feels. I think yeah. that is what, I think that is what it is. And um, in research with children, there's this concept of the least adult role. Because if you go in as an adult, full of power, the child is not going to talk to you. You've got to try. You're always an adult, yes. But you've got to sit on the floor. You've got to try and be where they are. And I think it's the case whether you're talking to children or parents or older folk or, or African folk. Um, you know, you, you obviously you come to it with your power and so forth. But and you can't pretend you don't have that. Mm-hmm. But I think you've got to try and minimise that. Um, you know, and and that's why I hate. You know, I really don't like you telling people that I'm Sir Tom Shakespeare because I because <laughs> I, I inherited that. I didn't earn that. I, 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 I never I never talk about it because people think you're different if you serve this or whatever. People even think you're different um, if you're on the radio. You know, I get uh, you know fangirling or fanboying, and I don't. I, yeah, I mean, it's tremendously flattering, but I just want. I'm just a human being. I, I shit the same way as everybody else. I screw up the same way as everybody else. I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll weep like everybody else. So don't put me on a pedestal. Let's sit on the mm. floor. Let's sit on the floor together. And I yeah. think that, you know, catching. No, people are not going to share their lives with you if they're frightened of you. Um, and and so for for researchers, it's really important to minimise their status wherever they can. No, not to lie to anybody. You're not pretending you are what you want. But you've got to try and put it behind. They've got to forget about it. Because it's like when you're doing a TV thing and there's a camera. You just say, forget the camera. Because if you were focused on the camera, you'd never be real. And we want people to be real in these encounters. Mm, mm, that's beautiful. One of the things that I um, maybe is the, the, your, your, your ability to, um, to, 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 to relate and to level is, you know, that, that you're... Uh, the way you storytell on Twitter, you know, I think you, I think you must get a lot of fanboying and fangirling on there because you're, but that's you sort of relating and enabling people to understand your daily life in a way that I admire because I haven't, um, you know, been able to, to communicate in that way uh, <laughs> or other places. So it's like, how do you? I mean, I know this might seem like a niche and maybe not that important in some ways, the sort of Twitter sphere. But how did you? I'm interested in how you started that. Um, I started being on Twitter years, yeah. years ago, and I started to try and promote the work we were doing. I think at, at, at the World Health Organization, um, and you know, it's grown and grown. And you know, I I talk about my dog. I talk about my baking, um, but I, I promote obviously uh, books and articles and stuff. Yeah, I think there's a real need for, for to get across all of the important thing there is in the in the world of disability and share it. So yeah, I, I think that mix. People say that Twitter is full of you know vitriol and poison. I don't remember ever ever having anybody be nasty to me. Yeah, I've had people who say you're talking tosh. You know, I don't agree with you. You're wrong there. That's fair enough. I probably was. I don't know. I'll just certainly look into it and try and work it out. I've never ever really found nastiness um, mm. and so I'm extremely lucky 
But I think part of it may be that I hope I'm real, I'm honest, uh, I, I screw up and I tell people. And, you know, and what, I mean, I'm, I'm a researcher and my commitment is to the truth. And so I try, you know, there was a guy on Twitter yesterday with whom I have great respect, but who was basically going into panic mode about, um, you know, treatment and ventilators and all the rest. Yes, yes, I read that. I, I think we've got to be careful. We don't want to say with people to panic, but we want to be real. We're in an epidemic. It's like a war zone out there. And in a war zone, you triage. And, you know, there aren't, you know, we. it's really hard, tragic, awful, but people are dying because they aren't able to get their, um, you know, uh, their treatment. Um, and that's not because anybody's being mean. It's because there isn't enough treatment to go around. Um, and so we have to take some really just tough decisions and look at that clearly. What I want is to respect the human rights of disabled people. I don't want people jumping to assumptions. I don't want them, I mean, doctors and others uh, being prejudiced. But, but you give the treatment to the person who you think has the best chance of survival. And I'm afraid that's what happens in a hurricane or a war or an earthquake. Um, and we've got to be real about that. And, you know, we've got to hold... Um, NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, to account, and we've got to mm. hold a BMA to account. But they're mm. not—they're not Nazis, you know. They're mm. struggling, and they're doing their best in a very, very difficult situation. Mm. And yes, mm. we can talk about the defunding of the NHS, and we can talk about mm. the, 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 you know, the fact that Public Health England is just struggling at the moment, given that they don't have the resources to deal with the crisis. And we can attack the government, so we should. Mm. But you know, um, we need to do so together. I think the, the partnership together, listening to each other, um, having respect. You know, I respect the doctors and nurses and other people, the cleaners, uh, the, the drivers, the ambulance drivers, the paramedics who work in the NHS. They're doing a damn difficult job. They've been underfunded for years. And I, you know, I think it's right that we should be respectful of them and you know, hear the voices of disabled people. And uh, yeah, we can't go into it thinking they're out to get us. Because if mm. we see that, which is, it's just not true. Some doctors make mistakes and we should hold them to account. Things like do not take resuscitation notices being applied to all of these old folks and folks with disabilities without any consultation. That is wrong. And we should call it out. And if necessary, we should take legal action. Um, but it's, you know, the, the story is more complicated than that. And the trouble is, at Twitter, you've got 280 characters. How can you possibly tell this whole story? But we're having conversations out there. And one of the things I did yesterday was to link so that people could see what the BMA had said and see what the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence had said. And then they realized it's not as bad as they think. Yes, there are points where we need to argue, but it's about recovery to a, a, a situation of health acceptable to you. Yeah. And of course, many disabled people are not going to recover to the extent they're going to be non-disabled, but it's their lives are acceptable to them. And we want, wherever possible, to enable them to recover to that level and to leave the hospital and to be healthy and, and well. And tragically, you know, we're going to get, you know, many, many deaths. Uh, and many of those are going to be of people with disabilities and older people who are immunocompromised or have uh, underlying disorders. And that's not prejudice. That's because we are more vulnerable or many of us are more vulnerable. And, uh, you know, that's just sad. But because disability is about... You know, having a decrement in health at the end of the day. How does it, um, Tom, having uh, been through the the virus yourself, 
I mean, uh, well, I think I have. I haven't been. Okay, no. Yeah, yeah, no. So my partner inform your view on that. Yeah. Well, my partner was ill for eight days. She was ill in bed, and I looked after her as best as I could. Um, and then I was ill after that, but much less ill. Much she was really ill. I was much less ill. And it, most of us, we might even notice not notice we've had it. Doesn't matter if we're disabled or not. Yeah, we ha might have it mildly. And sadly, whatever it is, 10% of people will have it really badly and some of them will die. And, you know, when, we have, when people have comorbidities, um, uh, uh, particularly respiratory problems, cardiac problems, then I'm afraid they're more likely to die. So I I've got dear friends and I just say, look, yeah, I've got a friend uh, who's in her 70s and has respiratory problems and she's self-isolating. I've got a friend who's had a liver transplant. She's self-isolating. Um, and I've got a friend down the corner who, who I see regularly who has a, a muscular dystrophy and she's self-isolating. The problem is, you know, she's self-isolating, but she has to have personal assistance. So she has to make sure that they take all precautions to keep their mm -hmm. hygiene and wash hands and, and keep two meters distance and stuff. Um, uh, you know, disabled people are dependent on others. And that's, that's a thing to say is that the disability rights movement has often talked about independence and choices and rights. And of course that's important because many people are denied those. But what I'm interested in is interdependence. Um, and what was really interesting to me about the turn of the century was reading the feminist ethic of care. And this is all about relationality, mutuality. Um, and you know, frankly, whether it's in a family or in a community or a workplace or in a life, uh, we don't we don't want to be independent in terms of an fu you know i'm 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 top dog that's what our teenagers sometimes think and they're a nightmare if they do but what we want to be is interdependent so you know i'm really lucky that you know the local vicar left me a curry on my doorstep and my mate down the road cycled around with a jar of marmite because i'd run out and kept social distancing and sat at the other end of the of the courtyard and we chatted and he left me a jar of marmite yeah, so, and, you know, we, we are much stronger if we're in these networks and communities, uh, whether it's neighbourhoods or families or, or whatever it might be. And if, if social work and if um, all of the other ways that we support people enables these networks and, and relationality to grow, the, the amazing thing about this epidemic, which is so tragic and so awful, is that in the middle of it, we've had mutual aid. We've had support. Yes. We've had yes. people singing. Yeah, I'm gonna tomorrow. I'm gonna do a singing online singing with other people. Marvelous. Uh, five o'clock today. My workplace, who are all scattered in their little homes and bedsits, will come together on 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 Zoom and have a drink together at five o'clock at the end of the day. Yeah, these things are joyful, and I think we've realised how important other people are to each to us. I got a, a text this morning from a guy that I haven't spoken to probably for two years. And we're going to have a chat over the weekend. And it's lovely that you connect with old friends and, and you email and say, look, we, we haven't spoken for a while. We really need to speak. And I, I think that is, that is a, a winning aspect to this terrible time. I think that is, the, I think that is something which is um, so important to hold on to, the mutual aid. And, and looking at historically when there's been times where, you know, it's been about the interdependence of a set of people in a set of communities because of the massive adversity that everybody's experiencing at the same time. It's a leveller in that way, although class and position, you know, gives privileges for you in that, you know, that can mitigate some of the impact. There's no doubt about that, you know. But I think for 
myself involved in social care, social work, and what the position of the state is in people's private and family lives is, and in communities, is that we really hold on to mutual aid, you know, and something that we need to think about supporting and empowering and enabling because what can happen is I'm one of my fears as a social worker and I've already seen a tendency to it in the professional conversation is that the, the need to kind of then oh, we're going to get back to normal and we're going to go back to the way it's always been you know the way the state operates in this power hold and this vertical kind of way of doing things and I think it's really important that we hold on to let's not lock up, lock up again like we did after the war when we finally got to recovery the state becomes this kind of great big animal and all of that kind of space around community driving and shaping it's kind of what's important to it, you know, how we help, how we look at what needs is across the across one family to another family. You know, I don't want that to go. You know, we have to, as I think as social work professionals, really resist, you know, that this is the time now for the professional because I've seen this conversation happening, which is, you know, what well, if it wasn't for the fact that we were here, what would people do? How would they manage? And I'm like, actually... A whole load of people are managing their lives without you. A whole load of people who have been working with you have been managing despite of your involvement. And actually the learning is for us, you know, is to go back to like, you know, we have very core things we have to do around the protection of children. There are very straightforward conversations around that statutory role. You cannot go away from that. But there's a whole world that still means that because you're in that space, you're still in that relational a connection because people most of the time most of the children are still with their families Tom to get me they're yeah. living in their communities they're not in the state care you know that's another story you know but the bulk of what we do is still with children at home in that with their families and they're making do you know they're they're I love this thing about the that context of what is resilience you get me and I get and I'm really I've been reading quite a bit about the social with social resilience you know and how that's how that works in terms of just not about the individual, but how about that context and that interdependency. And that for us is about the family, you know, because I think a lot of my concern has been about the disappearance of the family in social work in the last 20 years, because the focus has been on the child as some sort of you know, anatomised thing, you know, not part of a wider system, you know, not connected. And that's why it's so easy sometimes to remove them from families and then wonder why five years later, you know, they've got massively poor outcomes around them, making the whole of their you know, their social well-being, their actual physical health. And they and the, and most of them, Tom, go back to that family that we took them from years ago if they've not been adopted, you know. So there's something there for me about really resisting the professionalisation talk and the kind of thing is that, oh, well, you know, now we'll be able to really show how important we are as professionals. I mean, I think it's kind of desperately sad. And I have seen some of that on Twitter you know, from some of the professional social work leadership, to be absolutely honest with you. And it's kind of slightly disheartening because I think the language is really difficult, but also the thinking and the emotionality is, is not what I want it to be, you know. But you, you put me in touch, uh, uh, Bev, with the Adwiga Lee uh, New Beginnings in Stockport. And that's just a brilliant project. Um, she works with mums who've had children taken away. And I think their motto is that you know the the, the, the adult is the is it's the child in the adult that we need to work with, and so she does this long course, uh, really sort of psychodynamic, sort of getting back to the problems they've had in their lives, these mums, working through them. And by the end of the course, I mean it's it sounds amazing that the first run of the course, all of these children were reunited with their mums and they're back in their families, 
and the mums themselves are leading the course for the next generation of people in the care system, women in the care system. And yeah. that gave me such hope. She was obviously an inspiring person. It's an idea that's come from, from a, a Flemish project in, in, in Belgium. But, yeah, those sorts of things. And, and you know, she's with them. She's side by side with them. Um, and, you know, she's not the, I don't think she's the expert, but she's helping them self-help. And I think that's really, and they're helping each other. And I think that's really important and really heartening. And I think we're all broken. Yeah, I really think we're all broken. We've all had difficult lives and some more than others, some because, as you say, of class and gender and, and ethnicity and all the rest of it, very difficult lives. But, um, yeah, we all have to heal. We all have to do our best. Um, uh, this, I love quotations. And Immanuel Kant said, from the crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight was ever made. You know, we're all screwed up, rich and poor. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like the epidemic. It affects everybody, rich and poor. It doesn't matter. It started affecting people who went skiing in, in Italy. You know, the Germans who got it were, were young skiers, and they were fit and well, which is one reason that the German data is much better than ours. But um, uh, we all get, we're all broken, and so we need to help each other heal. And this ecological model, where it's about the individual, the family, the community, um, you know, rather than seeing, as you say, just the independent individual or the child, really important. It's must, you know, we've got to give resources and strength to families. I'm sure you're right in taking that approach. Yeah, that's lovely to hear them. You talk about new beginnings. Um, I think that mm -hmm. I agree. That's a really um, important one. And the, the interdependence is key for me as you know it's like where does the change come from uh, who who gets to benefit and who gets the um the credit i want to say well that's quite not not quite the right, right phrase but one of the things that um drew me and beverly together was we were discovering at the same time or sort of rediscovering this ac academic and social worker from the history of social work in in the us bertha Capham reynolds one of her key ideas was to sort of think about social care being being a club yeah. Um, and, um, something that you know we can all be helpers and or people helped uh, across yeah. the life course, um, and that Is might it? change. Um, and uh, and yeah, and what and one of the uh, we we do this sometimes at conferences. We are invite social workers to reimagine their 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 job title and give us a relational job title, and people. People come up with all kinds of, um, you know, uh, beautiful and weird and wonderful, <laughs> weird and wonderful things. Um, but one, the, the one that I sort of settled on was was membership ambassador. You know, I'd I'd really like to be a membership ambassador for that club. Yeah. Uh, you know, where we're, we're all either helping or, or or being helped, and so settling on the professional as the instrument as the instrument of change, I think is. The wrong direction and I hope I mean I'm hoping that the that the clapping for the NHS and the um and the uh the the, the, the warmth and uh that that uh is there at the moment for those essential services sort of translates into more mutual understanding um and more a sense of not just uh creating them as as as, as heroes mm. and the, the sole instrument of change but actually bringing together more understanding between the community and those those people as that we are we are them and that and they are us yeah I, th I think that's really important we're all health workers we're all washing our hands we're all taking health precautions and if we don't do it 
you know, they're going to have to bail us out. But the main thing is to try and get, you know, stop them having to do it because they, they'll be overwhelmed if we all fall ill. We have to take responsibility for ourselves as far as we can and for each other. Well, I mean, one of the levelling things in this has been the Berman and Bean Men uh, because, um, you know, a year ago they were the most hated uh, persons uh, in Birmingham because they were on strike for their rights, actually. Uh, to um, be able to uh, carry out uh, their work safely, but there was all sorts of problems with the Berman contract, and and now you're seeing, um, you know, lovely love notes being left on top of the bins for the bin men. You know, thank you for the job that you do, and I, and you know, it's not an irony to them that you know a few months ago they were the most hated um, people because obviously all the rubbish that was there, not being collected, created lots and lots of problems for people. So, absolutely, you know. <laughs> my partner tweeted yesterday. Thank, thank you, Lambeth, for the bin men. And women um, and and how they are still operating and the bus drivers still operating and you know it is very heartening you know, I go to my pharmacy to pick up my prescription still operating and we need these people and you know it's not just the professors and the and the doctors it's the bin men and women and bus drivers and uh, the shopkeepers and everybody else that keeps us afloat and I hope that the, that the epidemic has made us realize that it's not always the big people, it's the little people that matter. Yeah, that's for so, sure. So, Tom, um, I wonder for, for, our, for our third segment, I mean, we, we can invite you to, to maybe talk about um, something for your own life or about your, or, or something else from your activism. Um, I, I, think, I think the art thing is interesting. I think the, I think mm. the thing about the, the work and the time you spend as a, a in that in that world you know disability and and art i'd love to hear you talk a little bit more more about that if that's okay tom uh you know um i did tell my i did tell tim yesterday how you were at one point able to uh, uh teach children how to juggle and so forth because you know you got a little few circus skills yourself you know yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. i mean it, yeah um i think i mean i write and perform um, and so, you know, at the moment, I, you know, I, I've been writing a novel and um, I've been making radio programs. I mean, back in the day, uh, I was a stand-up comedian, not, not a very great one, but in the disability arts context, I was chair of the Northern Disability Arts Forum in about 1991 and helped uh, teach people script writing and, and things like that. Um, we had cabaret and, and beautiful music and, and uh, humour and uh, dance. You know, I was involved in a dance company. Um, I spent uh, three years on an arts fellowship with Nesta, which I was very privileged and lucky to get. And uh, one of the things that I did then uh, was to make three visual artworks. And in fact, I was in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago, Bev, should have seen you, um, doing, uh, talking about them at an arts, disability arts conference, which is lovely meeting artists again. Um, and uh, I, w I went to see this exhibition called Gothic Nightmares at the, uh, at the Tate Britain. And there's this a picture, a very famous picture called The Nightmare. And it was a woman uh, lying there and you've all seen it. And there's a goblin sitting on her chest and, uh, it, and, and she's asleep. And, and I just, it, I, it spoke to me, like sometimes artworks speak to you. And uh, I recreated it. Exactly the right size, same size. Uh, a friend of mine who was a dancer was the model. Um, I grew a beard and became a goblin. And we took a photograph of me naked, sort of hunched up, and then a picture of her. And then we photoshopped them together and put in a shadow. And we printed it out at big, big, big size. 
And what was I trying to say there? Um, I was trying to say, I was talking about really uh, these the, the difficulties for women in an era of prenatal diagnosis, that people are anxious about their pregnancies. And I had this idea that this woman lying there was anxious about her pregnancy. She was asleep and her nightmare is for having a disabled child. Um, and so I put a, uh, she wore a, um, a bracelet around her wrist from a hospital. Um, there was a, a thing of, uh, of, of um, a, you know, that cream for stopping you having stretch marks on your belly on the night table and a, and a book of baby names. Um, because there's a, an anthropologist who said that amniocentesis tells, turns every woman into a bioethicist. You know, that testing in pregnancy, I'm not, I'm not against it. I think it's good but it raises anxiety about, about pregnancy. And there's this medieval legend of the changeling. And the changeling happened when the goblins came and they took your baby away and they gave you a goblin baby. Um, and it's like, uh, it was an explanation of why they were disabled kids, why they were kids with Down syndrome or whatever it is. Yeah, they were goblin babies. Um, and so this goblin sitting on her chest, me, uh, uh, disabled, with a birth, you know, defect, some people would call it, um, symbolise that. And and I thought, I was talking about this yesterday, I think when I'm an academic, I'm trying to find the evidence and the, and the arguments, right? Um, and trying to, you know, trying to get to the answer. When I'm an activist, I know the answer and I'm hitting you over the head with it because I want you to change. But when I'm an artist, I want you to think. I want you to have not just think, but feel. I want you to have an emotional connection to the work I make. Um, and I, yeah, when I'm writing academic work, I don't want you to have an emotional connection. I want you to think. Um, and when, when I'm making an activist point, I want to persuade you. You know, I want to say this is what you should do. But I think a lot of things are in a state of confusion. We don't know the answer. And, and you know, it's like prenatal diagnosis. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying we should think about it and feel it and understand what it's like for disabled people, for women. Um, and that requires sort of sitting with it, sitting with the problem. Um, there's a great quotation from the poet John Keats about negative capability, and where he talks about uh, people being capable of being in doubts and confusions without any irritable reaching artifact and reason. And what he means, I think, is, is sitting with it. It's just being aware of the complexity of it and the difficulty of it and not rushing to an answer and not saying, oh, we know all about that. Because these, some of these questions are, you know, they're about your whole life. Um, and you're thinking about what is right and wrong and what you can cope with and not cope with and all the rest of it. So I made this artwork to try and help people. I, I talk about art as a tool for thinking. And I think the best artwork, and novels do this all the time, which is why I'm trying to write a novel. But the best artwork makes the reader or the viewer think and feel feel you know the difficulty um you know uh, uh, and, the, and, the, and the trauma and doesn't hit you over the head with the answer i remember when i was a writer trying to be a writer and doing a ma in creative writing i was told very wisely when you know your book or story or whatever it might be is about something you've got something which it's about that's really important but bury it bury it bury it bury it bury it so it's not obvious you know, because it's not, you know, you've got to have people be moved and realize for themselves. And if you hit them over the head with it, you know, it's, it's rubbish art and they, they don't accept it. But if it's deep down in the artwork, then they get in their own time, in their own way, to their own understanding. And that might be different from yours, but, 
you know, they feel what you're trying to say at some deep level. And that's what I think art is for. And that's why I'm keen. That's why I want to make art um, when I can. But, and I'm not saying I have the most talent, but I think that's why we all want to make art. Mm -hmm. I think, I, think I, I, I just sing, you're making my heart sing so much with what you've just said. Um, I'm almost getting high, Tom, so I need to be careful here. I might expose my... I might expose myself and get into some sort of space that should only be happening in my bedroom privately. But um, but uh, I think uh, I, the, 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 the words thinking and feeling are the, 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 the reason me and Tim started this whole process because we were reading about Bertha Capon Reynolds and one of her key lessons, she wrote about, she, she died in the, in the late 70s and she, she lived from sort of the 1870s, Tim, isn't it? You know, she'd gone through the wars, the Second World War, and she'd done, gone through the Dust Bowl, you know, and she'd social worked uh, in the kind of um, FDR programmes, you know, worked yeah. within yeah. the in those institutions. And she talked so much about people being, meeting people at the crossroads, you know, where life, life intersects. And what is it about uh, the person who is your, is the subject of your, desire to make a difference in the world your desire to do to to, to to help something drives you to be that helper and that person who needs is, is in need you believe of your help but actually their presence is the help you need for yourself you know you yeah. you need them as much as they need you and that this whole idea about being in a space where you're equalized at that moment and the issue of people's dignity then as a professional being really minded you know to the need to maintain that dignity for people because these were about maritime people who had been strong in their union, you know, had really had really good mutual aid. And, you know, the whole depression had completely broken, you know, work. And she was saying that they were so the proud, the pride that they brought in. They'd never want to ask for help. So and yet she came, didn't she, Tom, Tim, didn't she originally around? I'm going to be this great kind of scientific social worker and we're going to do all of these things and learn from that client group, from that listening to their stories, actually. It was about the thinking, but also the feeling at the same time, the need to maintain that capacity to think and feel around those engagements rather than have this social scientific approach that she sort of started her kind of early social work practice, you know, practice with. And in terms of education, she was very keen around, you know, that has been as just as important. That's psychodynamic stuff. She was very, that has been just as important, that, you know, thinking about how people are expressing their feelings and, how we have these feelings ourselves because we're just another we're just humans ourselves, you know, and we mustn't deny yeah. that those things are there. Yeah. So I, I go back to something you said a bit earlier on, which you talked you, that's that what you just said was so important for me around the not knowing, you know, which I know is a bit of a systemic stuff, but I think it's really important in, for us as social workers because we're we're having to always work and feel comfortable about working in the uncertainty of things, you know, that we just don't know. There aren't easy answers, but yet there's always this pressure to come up with the solutions, you know, and yeah. how how hard it is to hold back and stay with that 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 key, you know, that holding of things and recognizing it isn't clear actually. And it's something you said in the first bit. You talked about a bit about the light and the dark of it all. Do you get me? You're yeah. in this space, you know, which I think makes us. That's the bit that makes us the human bit. Do you get me? That's the bit that makes us the human in the, whatever field we're doing. That's the bit about us. As humans, because actually, the lessons that I've learned over my years of being in the social work is I just don't know actually, yes. and I'm and I'm able to be in a space 
because I've got confidence to say to people now, you know, I just don't know. Uh, but let's just think about it a bit or let's just try this a bit and then let's just think about it again rather than setting out the solution, you know? Yes, yes, you know? I, I completely agree. And I think that the, the awareness that you don't know, you know, and that we, we are all finding our way um, and, you know, we need to help each other understand more um, is, is really important because it stops you being so arrogant as to think you've got the solution and all you need to do it is apply to this this particular you know family or case or whatever it might be. Mm. And you know, that's why I do love doing research because you go into it ignorant. You know, just tell me a story. You know, tell me your life. You know, how do you get here? And it's that humble right. Yeah, you know, all I want to do is to enable the person to to give their truth uh, and to think it through. And and the more they say, the richer, the better. Um, and it was it's interesting because I've been uh, on the radio. Um, presenting front row from time to time and I love doing interviews and I, I, I was quite chuffed really I did an interview with Antonio Banderas oh um, that was lovely that one oh, God, that was that was good he's a lovely man <laughs> see me but I was really pleased because um the uh, producer afterwards said that was a good interview because you listened to him um and often re interviewers on the radio they just have five questions and they go bump 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 and that's fair enough, you get some stuff. But if you listen to the person about what's important to them and what they want to say, you get a much richer interview. And hopefully they come out of it also feeling positive about it. Um, they're not your tool, to a piece of plastic to sort of prod and uh, you, know, you leave your mark on. Um, uh, it, it's a bit like bread dough. Bread dough grows and swells and is alive. And you need it or stretch it or whatever else, and then it bounces back at you. And you know, and and it's it's that realization that under your hands you have a living thing, and you've got to respect it and give it space, and then you're going to get a better result. And if you just sort of poke it, <laughs> you're not really, you know, it's not going to work. Uh, I'm certainly not here to poke Antonio Banderas, but you know, I I, I love doing the title of it, the radio interviews because they, and I think I do them quite well because I have this 30 years of doing research interviews. Yeah, that, that natural ability to sort of, yeah, catch the feels again is, uh, comes through. And the I, I don't think it's natural. I don't think it's natural. I think I've screwed up many times. So I think it's learned. I think it's, it's, learned. it's partly natural. I've got, you know, I, you know, my kids say I talk bollocks for money. Um, you know, I, I can talk the hind leg off the donkey. But, I, I, but it's also learned. Because you realise that if you just go in with a bunch of questions and hammer people, you're not going to get anything. They're going to go, yeah, no, what, yeah, yeah. and that's going to be a disaster. Um, so you've got to make the space. As you say, you've got to catch the fields. I think what you said was really instructive for me about um, our, our activism and uh, the sort of cross-threads in social work of the, the law, the evidence base, the research that's being done on some of the meth methods that we use like Family Group Conference that I mentioned earlier, but also how we've um, wanted to to be activists in some way and finding a space for that yeah. within, 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 within social work. Um, one of the things, we can't yeah. accept things as they are. Things no. are good. So at some level, we have to be working to change them. Um, but, yeah, I think we have to work on the individual level, you know, on ourselves, quite frankly, and we then have to sort of work on the structural level to make the world a better place. But the most important thing, you know, so inner, outer, but also across, 
And across is relationality. It's working with other people. It's connecting to people. Um, because I think whatever we're doing, whether we're doing art or activism or social work or uh, research, it's the across the connection that is really important. You're talking about, and you've achieved some real high quality levels of, I guess, cultural production in, in your cutting edge or complementary to, to that activism too. You, can you crystallise your sort of, your aims or how do you, how do you choose your targets? You gave that example of the changeling and and countering countering that with art is it is it easy to pick the targets and to and to um d decide what other what 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 projects you want to do uh, no and yeah you know, i've only made three visual artworks and i haven't got any more ideas so i'm not going to make any more art you know uh, in, in that sense if i have another idea i'll make some more art but um you know and i think uh you know you're writing that you're writing that novel I, yeah, yeah I, i've got to ask about the novel <laughs> Yeah, I'm writing the novel, but I think it's about you know. I mean, it's if it, if it, it, it's not art if you know where it leads. Yeah, it, and I think it's that openness. Uh, I mean, it's craft, and it's sort of sitting down and writing every day for three hours or whatever I used to do. It's partly that, so it's partly just doing it. A lot of people have the aspiration to do this, that, and the other, and they don't do it. And it, you know, just write the blooming first word, and then we'll see. Um, so it's partly craft of you know in commitment but it's partly also exploration if you uh, yeah i really do think that yeah it's it's like the story is already there like michelangelo said you know about carving a block of stone he's just releasing what is already in there um uh, uh, and it, it's like the dough that rises and fills and swells you know you can put in the flour you can put in the water you can put in the yeast you can do the stretching but ultimately, you know, you are not in control of what create what. And I, every time I get my bread out of the oven, I just think, oh, wow, that's brilliant. Amazing. And it's so gratifying. But I didn't do that. The bread did that. Um, and I think it's the same. It might be the same with a work of art that, you know, you, 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 know, you release it. You release it. You don't make it. You release it. Um, and so there's an openness there as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing uh, uh, the novel. Um, I, I have a wonderful friend who's a wonderful illustrator in London, and we're talking about maybe, maybe, we're just starting to talk maybe, maybe of doing a children's book. So who knows? Um, but the point is that I fail. I fail all the blooming time. Loads of things, ideas I have don't work. And, and I think that's my final point is to say that, you know, failure is good. If you don't fail, you don't get anywhere. If you haven't got the courage to fail, you'll not try again. Um, you know, if you think I don't dare, then you're finished. You just have to put yourself out there, screw up, pick yourself up, be a bit of an idiot, write something rubbish because the next time you'll write something better. Wow. Oh, Tom, so I just want to thank you, friends, you know, for doing this with us and finding that time because I know um, you'd rather be with your granddaughter right now if that was possible. You know? <laughs> if it's possible, I'd go to Newcastle and see her. She only was born last week and I really know. Her mum's yeah. a social worker. I'm really keen to see her. I know, that's beautiful. And she's absolutely gorgeous. Thank you for the photos you sent. She's absolutely, go absolutely gorgeous. And Lucy's looking tremendous as well. Yeah, I want Lisa to move into... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah um, I, um, I want to uh, say uh, thank you so much. I think it's huge. I think we've got a huge amount of material um, to go through and listen to. Uh, you gave us such a lovely... Uh, tour of important things that you wanted to share as your stories and um and 
just a tremendous amount of learning for me as always whenever I, I listen to you my, my, my lovely friend I will say that oh, so, bless um, thank you bless you so I'm going to I'm going to sort of say thank you and I'm going to hand over to Tim to sort of just draw it draw it to a conclusion for us as yeah. well if that's okay sweet all right thank you I don't want to uh, summarize it because I want to um it's 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 so rich and um it's my my my, my synapses are kind of like pinging with <laughs> with, with ideas <laughs> which, is, which, is like, which is brilliant he's and, done um, the job then that means he's done the job it's making, yeah it's making me feel good from by confirming um perhaps some some important things for me some important values around my activism but also it's sort of really developing me and making me feel some different things so I'm so grateful for that i was really excited and thrilled to do this um you know because of what all that beverly's um uh, told me about, about you so i just I'm glad, I'm glad i didn't let her down no. <laughs> you, you seriously you seriously did not so it's been a real um, a massive thrill for me so thank thanks so much tom really yeah, really yeah. thank you thank you what a what a chance for me also to to have this discussion i really appreciate it and um yeah, good luck with the podcast. And I just know, Thank I just you. know that our, our, our social work colleagues and our social work researchers, but again, we've had a range of young social workers and older social workers listening to our first podcast, and I know they're going to just take so much from this in this time at the moment where they're in, where things are so. There's a lot of the dark for them at the moment, but also you've given us a lot of the light, you know, uh, and so there's a lot that we can take and hopefully just enrich them from this conversation that we're going to hear from you. So, thank you so much. Uh, Tom Shakespeare, because you've earned it, not the rest, you earned that bit. All right, Mr. Tom Shakespeare. <laughs> Thank you so much, darling. Thanks, guys. Take care. Goodbye. Cheers, Tom. Nice one. Oh, my God. Right. That was amazing. <laughs>